0: Welcome back to a very special edition of Trending in Education. Uh, today, uh, we're going to talk about uh, a really interesting new book called Brave New Work by Aaron Dignan, who we'll uh, get to in a moment. But uh, but to begin with, as if that weren't enough, we also uh, are, are over the moon. Uh, that means we're pleased to have... Uh, uh, a special guest friend of the show, Melissa Griffith, is back on. Thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us, uh, Melissa.
1: I am happy to be back here. I love that book. And so I wanted to talk about it. And, you know, I like to pick topics on trending education that I think are going to do really well. And I think Aaron's book is something everyone's going to want to learn about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cause like we already had, uh, I think you've only been on the show once, once. but we got the Melissa Griffith bump. So yeah. that's one of our top shows. Okay. And now we're going to get the double bump yeah. of Melissa Griffith. Plus Aaron Dignan, and yeah. it's like, oh my goodness, uh, I, I just have to show up, and uh, so my, my work here is done. So Aaron, uh, Aaron Dignan, uh, can you talk, uh, first off, welcome, thank you for joining. Well, thank you for having me. Excellent, uh, it's, it's great that you're here. Um, can, you, can you let our listeners know who you are, and, uh, and uh, you know, what kind of brought you to, uh, to our conversation here?
2: Sure, sure. So uh, I'm I'm Aaron uh, Dignan. I'm the founder of uh, a company called The Ready and the author of a new book called Brave New Work. And I spend most of my days trying to um, get rid of bureaucracy and replace it with more adaptive and human ways of working and doing and collaborating.
0: Awesome. And, uh, and you have uh, a deeper relationship with Kaplan as well, right? So like we've... Uh we've worked with you as an organis- organizational change consultant uh, to kind of help Kaplan figure out how to sort of adopt some of the brave new work practices that you outlined in your book, right? So I think both Melissa and I know you as a book author. We also know you who facilitates a mean meeting, and I mean mean, <laughs> mean in a good way, in a very kind yeah. but, but sharp way. This uh, is the
2: first podcast I've done with someone that we've actually uh, worked together, collaborated yeah. So, yeah yeah all The goods, you know all that where all the bodies are buried <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah I'm
1: still trying to move to self governing all all through my organization that's one <laughs> that Aaron Aaron talk, talked about a lot with us when he came here yeah
0: was- yeah yeah for sure I mean it's really interesting honestly to read the book and then see the through lines from your experiences with us when you were kind of trying to help us affect change and then uh, how you then sort of my understanding at least is you collected a lot of those experiences and then synthesized them into uh, something that should work for just about anybody, right? So like, uh, can you talk a little bit about who the book is designed for?
2: Yeah, I mean, I thought a lot about this obviously because the, you know, on the one hand, you you almost want to write a book for the people that hold power, the founders and the leaders and the owners and the, you know, the board members that really um, shape the way work gets done. But on the other hand, you know, there aren't that many of them and, and that, that may not be the biggest lever for change. So I sort of wrote it with, um, with a few people in mind. The first was just anybody that, um, you know, it has the opportunity to manage or lead a team. Um, if, you, if you have a team, whether it's a philanthropic team or, you know, inside a, a school system, like we'll, we'll talk about today or inside a corporation or a nonprofit or even government, um, I think that was sort of the person that I had in my mind's eye as I was writing. Uh, And then, you know, it's kind of scales up and down from there if you're an individual contributor on a team or you're just starting something new There's a message in here for you about what to look out for and what you can do now that will help you avoid becoming uh, You know the type of culture that maybe you don't want to become and if you are at the helm of something truly massive At the end of the day, it's really just a team of teams And so we can talk about how some of these patterns really scale and Mm -hmm. some of the stories from from scaled systems that we've seen
0: Yeah Uh, And, uh, and the way you structure the book was interesting. I think we'll get into that uh, in in a bit. But, um, but, but before we do that, um, what was it like to write this too, because like, I I think that was an interesting, uh, you know, passage or two in here talking about how uh, almost like your the way you work had to evolve before you could even write a book like this. So can you kind of compare and contrast yeah. writing a book versus running uh, running the ready and running a consultancy? Because it does seem like, uh, I really, w- I was struck by your uh, your example of when you told your team that you were writing the book and you were gonna be in the office a little less often.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what's interesting is I've written two books, one working in the old way and one working in the new way. So. The first book I wrote on nights and weekends while I was running my team and my, and my organization in a more traditional, top-down way, micromanaging every detail, kind of um, you know, being as progressive as I knew how to be, but still pretty much keeping it in the, you know, the playbook that, we're all, that we all know and, and uh, tolerate. Um, and, and it was pretty exhausting. I mean, I had to squeeze every spare minute. I had no time to myself. I had no time to think. And I think the end product, while it was good, was not as good as it could have been. Um, in this case, you know, I spent the first, uh, two years really of the ready's existence, putting these principles into practice. So making sure that we had enough autonomy and transparency and a shared kind of set of policies and processes that we all had the right to shape and to edit, and that we had clear roles and we had clear purpose in the world. And we had a clear kind of, um, way to, way to refine and develop our offering. And um, while we were not fully mature, and I would say one of my lessons learned is there was probably another year of work to do to be truly in a stable place, um, there was enough uh, shared ownership and enough shared power that um, when, I, when I did end up getting this, uh, this book deal, I said, I'm going to be gone like three or four days a week. I'm not going to work on client work. I'm not going to be able to deal with any issues that come up um, in any meaningful way. And I'm, I'm just going to try to uh, tread water on the work side while I work on the book. And I did that for the better part of a year. Um, and in the midst of that, I think we grew, you know, 30 or 40% and uh, added more members and signed all these incredible clients. And, you know, everything was fine, right? Like I'm not, I, I am, uh, I am necessary, but not sufficient And, um, so I, you know, the roles I played had to be handed off and, and the things I could do from afar, I did from afar, but it was a cool experience to be able to get up every morning, right, you know, ride my bike to a coffee shop and write for four hours and not check my email, Mm -hmm. um, and not worry about some, you know, disaster happening back at work because we have the right systems in place to, to tolerate that. So that's the way we did it. And after a year, it was a year and change. It was done. And then unfortunately, when you write a book, you have to spend the next year, packaging it and promoting it and doing all the appearing things. Hearing
0: on think. wonderful podcasts so and things like yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah, 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 for, for sure. These
2: stunning podcasts that everyone should uh, subscribe to and review. Um, and so, you know, it was it was definitely a different experience for me than the last time, and I think it shows in the work.
1: Yeah, so that, um, your story there and the story you tell in the book there is a testament to, like, that this works when it's put into practice. But, like, as a skeptic sometimes, I would would ask the question, I think you built a great organization of people, right? And so like, and you've got the right people together. How much of uh, your, your team's ability to like work without you is because you had the right people in place from the start versus the fact that you guys have been practicing these patterns for so long?
2: Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. And, and in some ways it's hard to tease apart, right? Because one of the things that we know from, from the research is what appear to be great people there's a high correlation with them and systems that work this way. So it's real easy to walk into a Costco instead of a Sam's club and say, wow, look at all these great people that chose to work at Costco. My take on it uh, with, with my understanding of human nature and social science is that Costco is a great environment that allowed people to become um, and to show up in a way that they showed up. And so while we all have different talents and we all have unique abilities and we all have different, Kind of preferences about what we should be doing and how we should be doing it. I and I've you know I've seen it in the research. Like in almost every industry, in almost every country, in almost every scale, there are organizations pulling this off by inviting people to show up and do the best work of their lives in an environment that really supports these ideas. It's not always instantaneous, but um, if you create an environment where people have autonomy and mastery and purpose and transparency and responsibility. Um, They often show up. And so, so yeah, I work with some particularly stunning colleagues and I think I have the unique benefit of working in a category of consulting where we can pay really well and offer attractive roles in attractive places and all that. And I think that really does matter, but um, you know, this works in tomato processing. This works in uh, you know, manufacturing, this works in finance, this works in nonprofit spaces. So um, I don't, I don't think it's unique to our context.
1: Yeah, I guess in in your experience, right? Have you seen where like sort of the system and when you put this in place, uh, the organiza- organism rejects um, foreign bodies? Do you, have you seen it happen? <laughs> or I, I am curious, right? Because you're you're starting with an organization. When if I was starting from scratch somewhere, like I have to believe some people will be skeptics. And uh, do we, you actually are you actually able to bring the skeptics along, or do some of them just reject it outwardly and go work for? Um, I'm not a computer or something.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of lump skepticism and individual change and even mastery and development all in the same bucket, which is, you know, anything's possible and people can and do change under the right circumstances. The question is more about one of investment. So when you're a very small company, you only have room and sort of you only have the ability to take the risk of needing to convince or develop or grow or change a certain percentage of your people or else you're going to be over taxed, right? You'll be suddenly like, Oh my gosh, I have to, there's me and a nine people who think this is BS. I don't, you know, that's all my energy just to sort of contest with that. But if there's nine of us and one person who's a skeptic, can they, can they come around? Absolutely. I think people are chameleons. I think they are very sensitive to, the um, nuances and norms of their environment. So, if you drop someone into an environment, I mean, hilariously, I'm about to travel next week to um, to London for the UK book launch, and I have a really bad habit of like, if I'm around people with a British accent, I want to try one on because there's <laughs> a human nature of like, be part of the tribe, right? Mm-hmm. So now I'm going to try on some accent and look like a you know look like I'm uh, out of order. Um, but the truth is, I just want to be a part of, and I think everybody does. So I, I think that it's natural for us to kind of assimilate a little bit and there's there's a good thing about that and there's also a shadow side to that
0: it's a, it, it is interesting it does make me think about the old saw you know uh by the way uh old saws new saws your quotes in here are amazing like <laughs> the fact that you're dropping uh, aldous huxley and nietzsche or nietzsche depending on how you want to <laughs> yeah. do it you got plenty it's well researched uh even if you just want to flip through and read the quotes they're phenomenal but the the Thank old you. uh the old org psych uh, strategy, uh, business strategy thing, uh, you know, uh, culture each strategy for lunch. So like just to kind of build on what Melissa was talking about, um, you know, you talk a lot about the uh, operating system to affect change within an organization. Uh, If there are cultural problems uh, or psychological safety problems, which is something that I know you talk about and you have a psychology background, and that's something we talk about on the show a lot. um, There are some sort of root problems that need to be addressed before organizational change can happen, and some of those are cultural. So how do you, how do you assess that as someone who's coming in as a consultant, and you then know, how do you sort of navigate that? That's a whole other level of complexity to almost you have to respect the culture, but in some cases, the culture needs to change for the organization to change.
2: I think well, there's no question that acknowledging kind of a distressed or, or a team in trauma is a different starting point than a team in stasis, right? Or a team that's successful. Like a team in trauma is gonna have a totally different take to this to this work and there's gonna be different things you need to do first, second, and third. I do think though that one of the underlying kind of points that the book makes is that every organization has an operating system, right? That a set of assumptions and principles and practices that are the foundation for how we work. So how do we structure teams? How do we pay people? What does it mean to be a member? How do we share information? Who can make decisions, right? All those things. Are fundamental, um, and my my belief is that culture is really just this sort of emergent expression that sits on top of those things. So, if if the answers to those things change, culture will change. You can't change culture directly, right? It's it is a it is a th- there's a quote in the book from a, a theorist I love that talks about culture as a shadow, right? It's it's kind of read only. So it, it it's going to be there, and it's going to react in different ways, and you don't know because it's a complex system exactly how it's going to evolve but we do know that these things are foundational. So if we, if we want to fix a culture where there's a toxic trust issue or there's no psychological safety, sometimes the best thing to do isn't to go head after that and say like, how do we get psychological safety and just talk about it constantly. That's not actually gonna change anything, but just changing the way we meet might actually increase the level of safety. Changing who we hire might increase the level of safety. Changing who can make a decision might increase the level of safety. So I like to get after the OS and let the culture emerge rather than worry about whether the culture is good or bad or toxic or indifferent and just say like, that'll come. Let's start at a principled level of inquiry here. What do we believe should be true about the way we do these things? And then let's make it practically true and then see what comes, right? See what we need to do next.
0: Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think we, ex- we experience a little bit of that with you too where like there is a certain <laughs> level of, uh, of uh, trust us to like, you know, you and your team, yeah. trust us as folks who will help you focus your attention on the things that will bear the most fruit. Uh, Cause I think frequently uh, when, when you're bringing in a, an organization like yours, uh, you know, you are, you're, you're at that first stage of recovery, right? You're admitting that there's a, there's a problem, there's a lack of perspective, there's a lack of um, momentum for change and frequently you need help uh, from the outside uh, to do that, and uh, that does seem very much tied to the way your book uh is structured right so like there there 's three sections uh the first section is kind of uh understanding the the problem uh understanding the problem space that we 're in like legacy organizations uh, and uh you know the the contrast between a legacy organization and an evolutionary organization. Then you pivot into the operating system, which is more like uh, the methodology you 've developed. And then um, you you sort of get into how to actually affect change with uh, the operating system. I think there's a ton that we could get into uh, <laughs> within each of those areas. But, uh, but just at a top level, like um, what brought you to that structure and, uh, and like how, you know, this is where we were talking, you know, when we were warming up here a little bit. Some of those things are probably more broadly uh, applicable. They're not just in a corporate setting. This is... Right. Any place where people come together, uh, I think this structure probably is a helpful way to think about affecting organizational change, regardless of the type of organization.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, to answer that, I'm actually going to do go a little bit around a corner, which is one of the things that the book sets out in the first part is the difference between a complicated system and a complex system. And most people don't spend a lot of time thinking about that and haven't had the chance to sort of delve into systems theory. And so they think they're the one and the same, right? It's, it's complicated situation. It's complex situation. These are synonyms, you know, we don't have to worry about their meaning. But when you talk to people that really study systems, they have a distinct meaning. A a complicated system is something like a watch or an engine that is, um, you know, built on cause and effect. It's causal. It's somewhat linear. Um, It has, it may have a lot of parts. It may require an expert to understand it. But if you take your car into the mechanic over the weekend, they can tell you when it's going to be ready. It's not going to surprise them. A clown's not going to jump out of your engine and, and everybody goes, oh, we have no idea how to fix this. Um, so so those are systems where a problem can be solved. Um, a complex system, on the other hand, is something like traffic or weather or a six-year-old where uh, who knows what could happen next, right? Like it's it, it's a completely different kind of a system that has a little bit of um, chaos at its core the number of agents that are interacting in these systems is too much there's too many interconnections and so the possible uh, you know outcomes are quite emergent and that means that it's somewhat unpredictable the best way to spot a complex system is if you th- if there's a good chance the system will surprise you it's probably complex um, and so you know with a complex system you can't really solve a problem you can only manage it You know, Nobody ever comes in from the garden and says, honey, I fixed the garden. (laughs) Um, That's that's not a thing we would say. So by the same token, we look at organizations and we look at organizational change. If we mistake the organization as a complicated system, as a watch, then we're going to want to write a book with these steps in this order. And we're going to want to say that we do this and we do that. And we just need to fix this part or we just need to change this person. And then suddenly it's all going to work perfectly. Mm -hmm. Um, But if we think of it as a complex system, we know that we have to interact with it. We have to you know, we have to poke it and see what happens. And we have to encourage the things we want to see more of and starve the things we want to see less of. And we have to be in dialogue with each other. And it's just a very, very different reality. So all of which goes to say that when I went to write the book, I was thinking about all this work and and the complexity of organizations and how rich that is. And it was like, Oh no, I have to write a linear book about a complex thing. So Mm -hmm. where do you start and where do you end when it's actually a circle,
0: Mm -hmm. right?
2: When you can start anywhere and end anywhere. And, and you know, that, that was uh, a lot of late nights basically batting that around and being like, which part of the OS do we start with and what, and why, and you know, how do I set this up for people where they're, where they're likely to have that kind of a rich experience. So my thinking was by starting at least with the problem and understanding what's going on and the potential future, we're grounded in what's possible and we're grounded in the idea that, our way of working was invented on a factory floor a hundred years ago for a world that no longer exists. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we need something more adaptive and more human and more meaningful now. Um, then to move into a deeper dive of, well, that all sounds good, but what exactly does that mean? So what does it mean for how we budget? What does it mean for how we pay? What does it mean for how we decide? And to get into some detailed stories about that. Um, and then and then to finish with, if that's intriguing to you, if that speaks to you, if that stirs something in you, then... Um, how on earth do you do change to a complex system, right? Because you, you can't do it by phases. You can't do the old thing of like, oh, we're all in the burning platform. And now we're all in the quick win section. And now we're all like, it. that's just, that's ridiculous, actually. I mean, when there are 10,000 or 100,000 people doing something, they're all in different states of being, they're all in different places of awareness and understanding and intention and ambition. And th- there's not one company, there's not one culture, there are millions of cultures all kind of coexisting in a soup. And then when we talk about the average culture, we're really trimming off a lot of that richness. So I hate when I see assessments that are like, we did a six month analysis and the biggest problem here is trust. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's not true. That's like Jeff Bezos walks into a bar, the average you know, net worth is $100 million. Right. But that's not actually what's going on. What's going on is there's a rich guy in the bar and a bunch of other people that need money for beer. And right. so the, the reality is that we wanna to get to the nuance and the detail so the change section is about participation. It's about saying, go to the teams and ask them what's stopping you from doing the best work of your life. And mm-hmm. when they say what it is, say, great, how can we start to test and learn our way out of that mm-hmm. and make it in a, a phenomenon that is distributed rather than pointed from the top to the best of your ability. And, and that's something that we've been practicing and frankly, learning a lot about over the last few years, even since we worked together more recently. We've probably done this a couple dozen more times and every time we do it, we learn more about just how true that is.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's scary, right? Like the, the folks who have gotten to where they are uh, by virtue of being in command. Yeah, playing the game. Have, now have to learn to, to sort of let that go and move towards something that's more decentralized, emergent, distributed. Well, they, don't, they don't have
2: to. They, yeah. they can choose to in order to get what they actually want. Right. And what they actually crave. Because I think when I talk to most people in power, they're frustrated and they're seeking a deeper connection. They're see- seeking something more. Mm-hmm. I very rarely meet someone that's like, oh yeah, I'm an EVP at a Fortune 10 and I am psyched. Yeah, like, It's working great and I love it and I feel great about what we do in the world and I'm just all over it. What you hear is like, there's something missing. Mm-hmm. And so I think for someone that wants to choose to step away from that way of, of leading and that kind of power, it's not a giving up, it's actually a trade. We're saying trade one form of control for another form of control. Instead of having top-down compliant-based control and power that is centralized, trade it for social pressure and transparency and collective alignment and the kind of collective consciousness that keeps these systems healthy and whole. It still works, it just works differently. Um, and it's more suited to, to your purpose, it's more suited to the world we live in today. Um, And that does, to your point, I mean, that is scary. And the the loss of some ego and some identity and, you know, all that stuff, it is a trade that they have to make willingly. And, um, and that requires bravery. I mean, that's why the book's not called Easy New Work.
0: Right. Well, and it's also I mean, it's growth mindset, too, which is something we talk about a lot where like, you know, when you've established, let's say you're mid senior on up, like you've kind of you may be thinking, okay, the growth phase of my life uh, is how I got here, <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> I'm just going to ride it now out. I but it's
2: be amazing.
0: Yeah, but now it's I'm not it, thinking that. Yeah, well, that's a good job <laughs> by you, and, and this is being recorded, so uh, so now we all we're all aware of that. But but it is actually, you know, like we have to all continue to learn, and uh, and then the learning gets harder in some ways. It gets more. It's more about allowing yourself to be vulnerable. You know, it's mm-hmm. more about putting yourself out there in um, an authentic way. And I, I thought it was really striking, too, just knowing uh, a lot of the companies you've worked with and the fact that you talk about an operating system, uh, there's sort of like a technology theme uh, to sort of a lot of your thinking. But then the book is very much about engaging in the humanity of work and engaging right. with, with the humans yeah. who really power your organization. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a great debate that we've had internally because the the utility of using some of the, you know, language of the machine, like the operating system is that people understand what it means. It's a foundational layer. I I use it much more biologically, honestly. I mean, I think DNA is an OS. I think that physics is an OS. I think there's actually, there are underlying rules and constraints to everything in the universe. Um, So when I say it, I mean it much more literally. Um, But it's true. You know, it, it does have some of those connotations. So we have to, we have to set the expectation right off the bat that we're actually talking about living systems Mm -hmm. um, and complicated complex systems rather living systems and so that that is a very different take and the things that we do want to do that might be more mechanized like maybe we want to hold a meeting that's more structured or we want to um you know understand the roles that we hold rather than having one big job title and so we're breaking things down like there, there are components of this that are about complication that are about specificity um we just want to continually ask the question of what's serving us. Right? So if that serves us collectively, then great. If it just serves the boss or it just serves, you know, one member of the, of our constituency, then that's not good enough anymore. So I think that there's nothing wrong with, um, you know, specifics and with technicality and even with software and tools and things like that, provided that we're always checking in with what is this doing for us and what is this doing to us? Um, because otherwise we end up down the road of just sort of I mean there's a quote in the book from Huxley about technology just sort of uh, you know accelerating our path to our own destruction, right Like if we don't own it, then it will kind of own us. and so that I think that's the main one of the main messages of the book honestly is take ownership of our way of working um, take it back from just something that we inherited and we stopped thinking about a hundred years ago.
0: I, I did want to get into the Huxley thing, but let's let's let Melissa's going next yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: I'm not even sure I know what that means, so I'm gonna go in my sure. One of the things, um, and that I was taken away from the book is like you talk a lot upfront about the organizational structure and, and how it has not evolved so much. And what I took away, and you can tell me if this was the right takeaway, is how you organize is so far less important than just how you work with each other and 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 how the teams interact and how you play. My question related to that is one, is that true? And then two, does it then does it not matter what org structure what primitive org structure we have in place or do we have to sort of move the organization into a more mm-hmm. like a, a more evolved structure
2: here's what i'll say uh, the first thing is that um, structure is a really good crutch for yeah. most people to start with when they start to think about doing organizational work because In their mind it's I can go home on the weekend I can draw a new chart in PowerPoint I can send the org chart out and say now everything's fixed and everybody do do as they're told in this model and assume that everything's better so it's a very easy kind of watchmakers approach to fixing the problem so in that way we often steer people away from structure as the first protocol to say you know let's not begin with that maybe we'll get there but let's start with some of the things that are more day-to-day and more hand-to-hand so how we meet, how we decide, how we share information, some of the tools that we're using, um, you know, some of the, you know, some of the ways that work flows through the system, um, those kinds of things are a little bit lower hanging fruit. But what I will say is that almost every case in the book, uh, and there are I think close to seventy, um, has moved away from the traditional kind of, uh, you know, functional matrix, hierarchical, siloed system for some very good reasons. I mean, one of the downsides of having these sort of centralized uh, functions and silos is that we start to identify with a part of the organization that doesn't create value by itself. So if lawyers sit with lawyers and designers with designers and you know coders with coders, um, we're all affiliated with an identity that is not actually the way we create value. The way we create value is when those forces come together. We make software when we have a designer and a developer and a customer person and a salesperson. And so that's actually how we make what we come together to make. And so we don't necessarily get a lot of value out of, even though there's a sort of um, on paper efficiency of saying, oh yeah, we put all the lawyers together and now we only have 50 lawyers instead of 60 lawyers and look how efficient we are. Yes, but... You've now also created a new bottleneck of work coming in and out of a single organization. You've created a single leadership structure inside that silo that's now containing and controlling information and trying to preserve and protect itself and scale itself and trying to have more lawyers so that we're more powerful. Right. Um, there's all these phenomenon that unfold instead of just saying like, what if we organized as as cells, as teams of teams around the work, around the things we're trying to create and worked as, as cross-functional teams with, with quite you know, focused purpose. So that that does tend to happen, and it does tend to be true of these evolutionary organizations, is that they they shy away from that traditional structure. I think you can do an awful lot of work before you have to go there, but if you start down this path, there's a good chance you'll end up uh, investigating that structure as well.
0: And I, I was struck by, how, that part spoke to me also, I like the acronym SLAM, the cross-functional the SLAM, SLAM to me. Yeah. Yeah. Like, because it's SLAM yeah. sounds like a, you're gonna get something done. Uh, and you gotta, you're going to break some things and, and move fast, uh, which is probably okay. But, uh, but I liked the, the tie to diversity as well, where like a lot of the, the, you know, diversity on every dimension. But like, if you're over, if you only have one perspective in the room, whether it's all the engineers, all the lawyers, all the executives, all the leaders, quote unquote leaders, they're not, there's not much that's additive to the, the 10th or 11th or 12th lawyer when you already got that perspective nine times, you know? So, right. and right. a lot of the research is bearing this out. By the way, I haven't got a chance to give you a little bit of good natured ripping around. Is there any luminary in organizational uh, design or, or psychology who didn't write you a recommendation? Uh, I, <laughs> yes. I, I think, I think your, your request for me to write you a recommendation, I think it might've gotten caught in my spam blocker. So like right. just, I, right. maybe for the next, the next edition.
2: For the paperback.
0: Exactly. But my God, I mean, like, uh, they're all there. Like, it's like, a, it's, it's, you're, you have a strong dust jacket game. So I just wanted to <laughs> give, you, uh, give you a little bit of, of props on that. But I did think, uh, you know, because Adam Grant was one of your uh, recommenders, and uh, I love what he's been talking about around, and it's, he's not the only one, it's actually kind of an emerging uh, sentiment that, uh, and the research is backing this up, that diverse teams make smarter decisions than non-diverse teams so that you're not, diversity isn't only the right thing to do, it actually makes you better. So like, and I think that very much came through in, uh, in, in a lot of what uh, what you were you were describing here.
2: Yeah, no, I think it's totally true. And uh, I mean, the science bears it out. I think the reality is we're looking for, you know, cognitive diversity and, and background diversity and identity diversity, all the things that will give us different perspectives. Um, a, a, an old colleague of mine referred to it as generative difference, right? Things that Differences that matter, that make us more able to create more, do more, be more um, effective. So, uh, so figuring out what those generative differences are, of course, is the work of every organization. Mm-hmm. And the other part of this that really matters is it's one thing to hire people who are different. It's another thing to give them voice. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that's true about the way information flows and structure and power and decisions um, and authority all kind of connect around this idea of does the operating system and does the structure and do the way, do the ways that we collaborate make space for that diversity? Because it's, I mean, you can line up 11 very different people in a room and then have the boss yell at everybody for an hour and then we all leave. And it was like, I'm glad I'm glad everyone was diverse, but we just all had a diverse, diversely similar crap experience, right. right. So um, so instead, it's more about how do we invite diversity? How do we how do we actually include, and get participation out of everyone, and that is really where the rubber meets the road. And frankly, even when you don't have massive diversity, just that, just getting more participation, gives you an edge that you already had that you didn't even know you had. Because mm-hmm. there are these, there are differences between us, even if we look the same or went to the same school or whatever. We actually have difference that we can use in a generative way. So, and then all the better if we can go, you know, all the way to the edge and have the most stunningly diverse team on the planet.
0: Yeah. And it, it reminds me a lot in learning science, you know, we talk about the model of the learner, like what you're talking about is more the model of the employee, like, like who is your ideal employee. And it reminds me also of the distinction between a cultural fit and a cultural ad, you know, do you want to right. assimilate and conform to what already is there? Or do you actually want to say, that's not who we want to hire. We want to hire people who are going to add to the culture, even if it means dissent, even if it means, right. Especially challenges.
2: if it means dissent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I think we we even in our own company at the ready, we we talk and struggle a lot with that idea of like, what are the things that we want to have in common, right? Like, what are the requisite commonalities? It, you know, because obviously there are lines, right? Like, I don't want someone in the company that holds values that are completely oppositional to mine on some fundamental things, where it's like, I just that's not that's not generative for me. Um, but then for things that are so I like I like that idea of, of hiring for cultural addition for for bringing something new to the table. And I like the way Adam puts it in some of his work when he refers to the ideal policy of what's missing. Right. I think what's missing is even a more interesting question than what can we add. Right. It starts you searching for the longing of like what is what do we not have that we kind of do crave or that we kind of would feel would be generative. Um, and, and I think if you answer that question, honestly, you end up with a pretty diverse cast of characters.
0: And, and it kind of speaks to what I've heard recently as well, which is like frequently the the leaders who, have, who make the best decisions are less confident about them. So like, you know, like when you are not looking for the dissenting voice and when you're not aware that you may not have all the answers, um, you're not actually going to be as good as the folks who are actually vulnerable and expressing their own doubt about whether they're getting it right. It's your your point about a complex system,
2: you know, like if yeah, it's complexity, you have to be complexity conscious. And that means more humility straight up. I mean, you can say that you know what worked a year ago. That's lovely. That doesn't mean it'll work this year. And so there has to be that part of your brain that switches on. That's like, I have a strong opinion, I have some experience, I have some expertise, perhaps, but I also have some humble kind of, you know, learning mindset in the face of this complexity and this uncertainty where, I'm going to try the things that I know worked, but I'm also open to alternatives. And, and the more successful we are, the more potential that creates for that randomness and for that variability and for that exploration. We actually want the system to get more exploratory the more success we have, not less. And ironically, most systems do the opposite. They get more and more enchanted with the way they do things as they get bigger and bigger, um, when in fact now they have the resources to be more exploratory.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that like leadership is more about humility and curiosity than like command and control, you know, because yeah. it's which, which all it's all yeah. Taylor's fault. Uh, Melissa, Melissa, you have a and, and, and Huxley title was amazing. Uh, the many Aldous Huxley quotes in here. So is there is there something more to know about uh, Aldous Huxley and his, his influence on you? Brave New World, I imagine well, was the inspiration. Great. of great.
2: He's a great thinker. Um, and in fact, if you go watch old videos of him being interviewed about the future, it's kind of stunning the degree to which he's predicted what's happened, even all the way up until and through the Trump administration. I mean, he was incredibly prescient. Wow. Um, I named my son after him. So my, my one and only son is named Huxley. I thought uh, so, because
0: that was the book was dedicated to Huxley. And I thought that was your. I was trying to infer that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So that That's part of the story. And I think, you know, it just so happened. It was not my intent from the beginning, but it just so happened that the the edge of the knife that we sit on right now is the edge of the knife of, are we going to continue doing things the way we've done them and and let, you know, advanced capitalism become what it's becoming and let bureaucracy become what it's becoming and end up in a brave new world scenario, Mm -hmm. um, which I think we all now can agree is at least possible on the horizon. um, Or are we going to uh, reclaim the, you know, the way we work and some of our basic uh, humanity and power of of collaboration and actually reinvent a lot of these systems, reinvent the way we work and reinvent the way we govern and and kind of get uh, get to the next level. And I feel that, uh, yeah, the, the timing of the book is auspicious because it's sort of like, yeah, it's either Brave New Work or it's Brave New World and you pick.
1: <laughs> yeah, you, you do talk a lot about that at the end in the epilogue. And I, I think that was so important for, for me to hear. And do you want to get into a little bit of just how you think that you can take this from just a West system, but you can take it into the world and that you can actually start, the world can start to live in this brave new space.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, the the epilogue of the book was really about what happens if we get it right. And what are the things happening that might enable this? Um, And I think that, you know, obviously if we get it wrong, we know what happens. We continue down this road of, of uh, disengagement and disenchantment and, and, you know, inequality and, um, and, uh, you know, nationalism and, and all these sorts of things that we don't really want to see. Um, but if we get it right, it really creates a new chapter of like a, a new kind of competition, essentially resetting the bar for what success is. And instead of saying that, you know, the business of business is business, we start to move the bar. It's no longer, you know, there's a quote at the end of the book. Um, it's no longer about who's the best in the world. It's who's the best for the world. Yeah. Um, and right now somehow that's got this patina of like, you know, a very hippie sentiment, but I don't understand why, like why not fight to see who can be the best for the world? Why isn't that the pinnacle of success? And, and so, um, creating the conditions for that is important. And one of the things that we cover in the end of the book is the fact that, you know, when you raise money from sources that want, uh, 1000x return, when you go public in markets that, you know, trade stocks every five days or every five seconds, that 70% of its algorithmic that everybody wants never ending growth forever, right? When we when we live in a world where a company that is worth a trillion dollars is fundamentally required to grow,
0: right?
2: Um, something's broken, right? And so we need to rethink that. So the, the book talks about new forms of corporation, like public benefit corporations and certified B corps and older forms of it, like, you know, cooperatives that have at their core an identity of, you know, yes, we want to be successful and profitable, but we also want to have an impact that matters. And we're seeing more and more companies, you know, fit that bill, whether it's a Warby Parker or whether it's a Tom's Shoes or a Patagonia or a Whole Foods or fill in the blank. Um, and then I think the, the second part of it is the funding sources and and the public markets. So having new funding sources like VC that put different strings attached to, to our growth and to our commitments that are a little bit more less onerous and more um, understandable. And then things like Eric Reese's long-term stock exchange where when you go public, the people that hold your stock the longest have the most say, the most votes Mm. about what happens next, as opposed to the people who just want to mess with you and make money on your volatility, Mm -hmm. which is really kind of the darker side of what goes on. So I think those things are all creating the conditions for the next generation of companies, or old ones for that matter, I mean, Danone is a multi-billion-dollar company who decided to become a public benefit corporation. So I think it's possible uh, to go in either direction, but it does create the soil for this, you know, new thing to emerge.
0: And, and you attract talent in a, in a more genuine way that way, as you know, rather than viewing your talent as as assets you know, your talent is actually aligned around your values and first principles and you, you retain them more and you get more, they get more intrinsic value out of their work and your, your culture gets stronger by virtue of that.
2: Yeah, I mean, people, it's funny to me that we, we don't see this, but when people are fully present, when they show up whole, when they have, you know, autonomy and, and mastery and purpose present in their day-to-day existence, surprise, surprise, they do better work.
1: Yeah. You know,
2: I mean,
1: it it is actually I love two things about what you had in this book that's along this talent line. I love how you at the ready you talk about how you treat talent and people who want to leave and and just putting them into the world. And then the other part of even how you think about talent and talent move into competition and how you help it like competition is like in companies you compete with. Are not necessarily the the way we should think about them. But if we are all in it for the collective and moving talent around and learning, if you have if you're purpose driven, people who are like-minded and companies who are like-minded are more likely to work together. And I think that's an amazing uh, point that you hit on that I don't think a lot of people or companies think about like that.
2: Yeah, I think we have this um, we have this addiction to the idea of the market solving all our problems, which in some ways I align with. I mean, I think. There's no better force for evolution than having a market of ideas, a competition of ideas and approaches. You want that because it creates the, the one-upsmanship that results in innovation. That's where great ideas come from. That's why we don't want to get into an environment where we have no competition. But by the same token, if you're purpose driven, you can you can actually chew gum and walk at the same time, right? So yes, I want to compete with the people that do what I do, and I want to I want to do it better than them, and I want them to do the same thing. I want the I want the category to grow. I want the 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 field to prosper. I want the ultimate intent of the work to be realized in the world, not just to win. Um, and so I think that you know the the desire to see other people fail is um, is there. I guess it's it's a it's one part of the human identity, but it's not the only part. And I think our you know we can we can call upon our higher aspirations to say. You know, yeah, I want to win, and I want I want all of us to continue to elevate. I want all of us to continue to grow. And there's a a story in the book, um, Bertzorg, which is a a European home healthcare system. You know, the CEO of that company, which is you know, employs 14,000 people and is the number one employer in the Netherlands. Um, he actively goes and coaches other CEOs in the same space. I mean, can you imagine Bezos sitting down and coaching another executive? how to, how to outdo Amazon, how to do what they do. Um, so it's, uh, you know, and his answer is like, Hey, healthcare is a calling, man. I, you know, I want the world to have a, a better, a better class of care. And if that means that I don't make a billion dollars and I make 900 million instead or whatever. And obviously he, he makes a lot less than that cause he's they're quite generous with the way their money moves in that system. But, um, so be it, you know, I think that's, I think that is admirable.
1: So one last question for me, I don't know, um, and Mike may have a couple more. Um, what, what is the biggest takeaway? If I wanted to start, like, and I'm not at the top of my organization, I'm just a, a middle manager in the organization, but I am really bought into to, to this process based on reading your book, what, where do I start with that?
2: So I think a couple places to start. The first is um, if you have a team, whether you're the leader of that team or a member of that team, you can find the occasion to ask them the question, at the beginning of the book, what's stopping you from doing the best work of your life? Right. Let's just ask that question and see what the answers are. And maybe the answers are we have meetings to prepare for meetings, or we don't have the information we need, or we don't trust each other, or there's no time to think, or who knows what the answer might be. There's you know there's 78 that I list in the book as possible very frequently occurring tensions, um, and you can even use that list, or we or we make these cards that help people flip through those and sense what's really true. So start there. And, uh, and when you hear from the team, the answer or answers to that question, then the second question is, what could we try? You know, what do we? What could we try? And, and in the book, we, we pair that list with a set of these new practices, but you could also find them on your own. You can search, you can talk to people, you can look around, um, you can do your own research or you can invent something from scratch. The point is not to get it perfect. The point is to move towards the adjacent possible, to take one step, right? Make it a little bit better, see what you learn, what questions does that ignite, and then where do you go from there? And then there will be moments once you get a little bit of momentum where you can say, maybe there's some big things we want to change. Maybe there's some big things that are broken, and we're, we're now more comfortable to take those risks. So I think it starts with a question, and it starts with a series of experiments that you're willing to try. And then the second thing you can do is um, you know try to open this conversation up and share more Sort of work in public as a system within your broader community. So, if you're the team that's trying things, be also be the team that captures them and, and releases videos about it, and and you know articles and shares stories on the internal Slack channel about here's what we're doing, here's what we learned, here's what we tried. If you want to borrow it too, here's a, a version of it that you can try. You know, and sort of become storytellers mm-hmm. because I think that um, real change is about organic spread. And so if you have, if you can create that phenomenon, then that's a really powerful thing to do even from the middle uh, or from the edge, mm-hmm. but at a minimum, you know start with where you're at and, and start with who you're with and just ask the question and start to start to make those changes take, take some uh, responsibility for the way you prioritize and work and say yes and no and communicate with each other and make decisions and all that stuff.
0: yeah. Uh... We could uh, clearly continue to go on and on, but we're getting, uh, getting close, to, uh, close to time here. Uh, the name of the podcast that uh, you're on is Trending in Education. So uh, as someone who admires futurists and uh, has named his uh, son about, uh, after uh, Aldous Huxley, uh, any, uh, anything emerging, any trends that you're watching that, that might be specifically relevant to education, uh, learning, and the like?
2: yeah for sure Um, two things that come to mind the first is that you know the the whole thing about complicated complex really affects our future and so if you're an educator if you're a student if you're someone that's you know shaping the life of a student you have to be really conscious of the fact that things that conform to a checklist will not be done by people in 10 or 20 years Um, if it can be turned into a checklist if it can be turned into a how-to if it can be uh, written down as an algorithm it will be automated and so our job is instead to focus on the activities that are emergent and creative and uncertain and require judgment and and you know passion and different people's ideas colliding. And so that um, that means really getting kids together or, or adults together for that matter to solve problems and to create things. Um, and a lot less of like what's the capital of Nebraska? If mm-hmm. it's worth memorizing, it's worth looking up. Mm-hmm. So I think that is um, that's the first thing. And then the second thing is there's actually a lot going on in this space. I mean, there are schools in other parts of the world where these ideas and principles of self-management and self-organization and participation and and a more kind of empowered approach are are really working. I mean, the, the uh, Evangelical School um, Berlin Center, or ESBC in Europe, uh, brings all this stuff to life. Um, and Lumiar schools that were originally started down in Brazil by Ricardo Semler, you know, both um, have curriculums designed and shaped mostly by the students, an extremely participatory approach to the governance of the school and the identity of the school, um, you know, really flipping most of the traditional ideas of school on on its head and doing so in systems that have more than one location, that are scaling, that are working. So um, it is possible to even just look around in your own backyard here and find that there is, there's a little renaissance of self-managing schools kind of bubbling up.
0: Wow, you know, uh, I, I tend to ask that question of most of our guests, and uh, I understand why you had so many uh, recommendations on your uh, dust jacket, because that might be the fastest uh, and most effective uh, extemporaneous uh, <laughs> read on where stuff is heading. So, nice job by you. Uh, thanks awesome. so much, uh, Aaron Dignan, uh, author of uh, Brave New Work, which is available uh, wherever you can buy books or audio books, right?
2: Yeah, pretty much everywhere.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us, Aaron. Thanks,
1: Aaron.
2: Thank you.
0: And, uh, and thanks, Melissa. Uh, hopefully, uh, this won't be your last engagement. We'll start a, a punch card system. You have two punches now, and uh, hopefully we'll continue to, to have you on the show more.
1: What do I get when I get to 10?
0: Uh, our our uh, undying gratitude. Awesome. Uh, so thanks to our listeners. Uh, we'll be back again soon. And uh, again, thanks to our guests for our time.